ballooning corporate debt threatens to cause a severe economic downturn in the U.S. and around the world. The question is, what's the tipping point? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Debt as a percentage of world GDP is at its highest level ever. In the U.S., it's equal to three and a half times GDP, far greater than in the Great Depression of the 1930s. Obviously, the state of affairs can't last forever. But when will the house of cards come tumbling down? Today, we get a lesson in debt, credit, and economics from my guest, Jerry Flum, CEO of Credit Risk Monitor. He returns to the podcast to explain how we got here, why debt is continuing to build to unsustainable levels, and what kind of trigger is likely to set off economic disaster. We're looking at the possibility of the deepest and most lasting crisis in the last 90 years, he says. We'll also explore possible solutions and how the impact of this looming credit-driven crash might be mitigated. So here is my conversation with Jerry Flum. Jerry Flum, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be back. Jerry, you have been ringing the debt alarm for some time now, and I'm wondering if you feel like anyone is listening to you out there in the wilderness. Well, I do think that people are beginning to pay attention. We can see it in the angst that we're picking up. Predominantly, we support risk officers, which would be credit managers at the largest corporations around the world. But lately, the real quick part of our company growth has been with the supply managers or the procurement managers who are now getting more and more concerned with the length of that supply chain. I'm beginning to sense now people are finding it harder and harder to deduct the implications of this excessive debt. It's cumulative, I think. We never know what the triggering event is going to be until probably a year or two after when we start to take apart why everything really started to come undone, and then we find out the culprits uh, happened, and when they happened, we at the time, never recognize them that that was the straw that broke the camel's back. We have that wonderful view in the rearview mirror. It's always Yes. Perfect. Isn't it great? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, just to clarify what we're talking about here, debt can take several forms. It could be corporate. It can be sovereign. It can be personal and consumer. Are we speaking mostly yes. about corporate debt today? I'm right. actually talking about m many different variables because I, I believe that most discussions of debt – whether it be in the risk at corporations, from risk offices at corporations, or even investment people, I find that the conversation starts really short of where we should be. In other words, when I look at the world today, debt as a percentage of GDP for just a common denominator to have all the way through history is at the highest levels it's really been in, in the history of man. And so this excessive debt comes in all forms that you mentioned, the corporate, the personal, the uh, governmental. And so there's a huge amount of debt. The important thing that I think people are forgetting on the second part of it is somebody owns that debt. In other words, I'm telling you that for the most part, most of us look at and say, look, corporate debt, which, by the way, is at record highs, 
is going to impact those companies that go out of business, and therefore the creditors are going to be hurt dramatically. The loans are going to go out. The people who work at those companies will have great difficulties. Second part of it is we need to remember that this debt is parked in mutual funds. It's parked in all kinds of investment vehicles, 401ks, cassette index funds. Big pension funds, institutional pension funds. Big pension funds. Somebody Mm -hmm. has to own the debt. The risk now is as these excessive debt has gone all over the world, the reason it's occurred is because normally – The issuance of debt has a natural predator. In other words, somebody in the forest, there's a wolf in the forest that prevents the reindeer from taking over the earth, Hmm. and it's the wolf. And in debt, the natural predator to prevent excessive debt or to slow it down is as debt gets excessive and excessive and risk goes up, the interest rates that people have to pay to issue that debt is the controlling factor which prevents it from getting too excessive. However, in the last 10 years or 15 years, the governments of the world, when they began to realize that the debt was so excessive in the last 15 years, they started to step in and artificially depress interest rates. The central banks and the governments did this. And so what happened, as they artificially depressed rates, more and more and more debt got issued and issued and issued. And it shows up all over the place. It is now excessive in the corporate arena. In other words, Mm -hmm. historically, when you go back, the excessive debt would occur at the consumer side, the possible government side. What's happened at this point in the game is that the corporate world has gone crazy. It's got excessive debt on our site, our credit risk monitor site. We have charts and historical data where we can show this, and this enormous amount of debt is going to really impact the corporate world. But I want to say something else which I think is really critical that people don't understand about debt. What makes the world grow? What makes GDP start to grow? There are three factors that really drive GDP. One is population. In other words, as the community gets more and more people, as more people come into our society, then we need more Buicks or more Chevrolets because there's Mm -hmm. more people. Secondly, what helps grow the wealth or the GDP of the world is something called efficiency. In other words, can we, can the same 10 people, instead of producing 10 10 Buicks, can they now produce 11 or 12 Buicks? So that's called productivity increase. Mm -hmm. The last thing that drives uh, GDP is incremental debt. In other words, what's the point of debt? Debt allows somebody who doesn't have enough income or doesn't have enough savings but wants to buy a washing machine and somebody will sell it to them by lending them the money either through a loan or through sequential payments staggered over time. So what debt does, debt allows a future payment that you can't afford whether you're a corporation or a government or an individual. It allows you to take that future payment That washing machine that isn't broken yet, but you want it now, allows you to take that washing machine and move it into the present tense as a purchase. So what happens is 
that at some point artificially, or not artificially, increases the growth rate of GDP. And what's happening in the world, and we measure this stuff, is the debt is growing or has been growing much, much quicker than GDP. In other words, the incremental debt now was the driver of GDP growth. So at some point, it gets to be excessive. And as it gets to be excessive, interest rates go up, and now the government's come in and depressed the interest rates, so more and more debt gets issued. And what's occurred now is what I consider the, the real catastrophe, and that is everybody around the world now has excess capacity in manufacturing all over the world. Now, why is that dangerous? It's dangerous because when you have excessive debt and you have a contraction where people now start to spend less, all of a sudden that capacity all over the world means there's more cars than can be bought. And therefore, people have to start cutting prices. There's an ability to make 10 cars, but the market for the cars is only seven. So somebody, it's like musical chairs. Somebody is not going to be able to sell all they can make. And so what happens is companies start to cut prices. And they cut prices all the way down to... $1 over cash flow break even. In other words, you're going to sell that car or that unit at a price which is slightly above what it costs you to make it in cash flow because you need to do it because you need to satisfy that debt. In other words, the debt is something that is one of these ugly things that never goes away. And if you miss a payment, they can force you into default and then bankruptcy. You seem to be suggesting, and this is a scary thought, that this stellar economic performance that we've seen in the last few years has been largely fueled by debt. Is that Oh, it clearly has been. It's, you, mm -hmm. uh, so it's, we've been borrowing uh, in order to have a great economy. We follow that really closely. Debt right now, at corporate level debt, is roughly 48% of the gross national product of the United States. Let me put that in perspective here. That is a world record in the U.S. What would you consider to be a more sustainable level? Well, it's sustainable because it's been issued at low, low interest rates. So now the question comes, and a lot of it is high amount of what is referred to as junk. Now, of course, Wall Street and the guys who sell this stuff to uh, the buyers to own it don't call it junk. They call it high yield. And uh, they say, uh, listen, buy this bond because it yields more than you can get from government debt or more than you can get if you buy government bonds or if you buy government paper. And therefore, they are able to sell it by saying it's high yield. What they don't say to you is buy this high yield because it's junk, because that would be a marketing problem. But it is basically I, yeah. junk. I guess it's not at all ironic that Michael Milken, the king of junk bonds from way back when, was pardoned just now. So it sort of brings that back. Nothing seemed to have changed since that time. We've learned nothing well, from the dangers of these so-called high-yield bonds. Yes. Right? Uh, well, that's true. History is not something that we really uh, pay attention to unless it's our own personal experience. Mm -hmm. words, we don't read the history books going back. We say, hey, my experience on Earth for the last 30 years, these are my experiences. And so we don't really get a chance to get some kind of depth or longevity in our view of what's happening. Guys like myself who study this stuff historically and have been and 
the other factor for me is that I'm an old man. I've been doing this a long time, so my perspective is a little longer because I'm going to be 80 on my next birthday. So I've been around a while. So I look at it, even on the personal level, a little longer. And you're right, it's a catastrophe. It's reoccurring. A debt and credit crisis like we're having today is something which occurs every 70 to 80 years. I mean, once you get into one, they are so horrible and so difficult and take such a long time to get through them that everybody who's living through it and is an adult never wants to go through it again. So what happens is it takes roughly three or four generations for people. In other words, it's my uh, parents uh, lived through it, and so they had no debt. They never took debt on in their life. They were so frightened to death after living through it. And so I was their son, and uh, so I paid attention, and I had very little debt. Then my kids came along, and they had less experience with debt, and they put on more debt. And then I get great-grandchildren, and they're very far removed. And that's the sequence. You can get overvaluation in stock markets. You can get overvaluations occasionally, even in bond markets. Or in housing markets. Or housing markets. Basically, what's happened is we've had incredible amounts of inflation that are not recognized. One of the wonderful things about Wall Street and governments and all the people on TV shows and all the pundits is they have different words. They confuse people with different words. Let me give you an example of what I mean. If we've had a huge amount of debt and stuff put out, and yet people are saying there's no inflation, and actually there's huge inflation going on, but we just don't call it that. In other words, one of the wonderful things is all this excess stuff that the governments have done to to keep these rates down is we have now seen that the stock markets and bond markets have exploded. And that's basically inflation, but we call it a bull market. In other words, these guys who are trying to sell us all this garbage are basically have been able to switch the verbiage. In other words, mm-hmm. if a stock is selling at 10 and it takes 10 single dollar bills to buy that stock or the same or the percentage ownership of that company, and now it costs $500 to buy that same stock or one or percentage ownership of the company. Is that a bull market or inflation in the value of that company? In other words, at the end of the day, the stock represents 1% of the company, only now you're paying $500 for it before you paid 10 What we understand inflation to be is related to goods and services, consumer prices yeah. and the like. That's yeah. the most visible stuff. We don't think yeah. of stock prices because a stock is something you can't like hold in your hand exactly. It's something where the, where the value yeah. can you're, go is you're volatile. Absolutely, you're absolutely right, Bob, but here's the difference. Right now, the stock market is selling at roughly 1.4 times GDP. At the top, back in 1929, it was one times GDP or 1.2 times GDP. In other words, right now, if the, if the price of our stock markets as a percentage of gross national product is so excessive, it's Warren Buffett's one of his favorite indicators for overvalue. Number two is debt. That other thing that goes out and allows us to confuse inflation is now 3.4 times GDP. In other words, it's these things have exploded, not by three or five percent. They're massive. And that's where all this excess capital has been going into. But as long as money is cheap, 
as long as we have this bizarre period of time when the interest rates are just stuck at low levels, no matter how much we talk about any day mm-hmm. now they're going to go up, this mm-hmm. it sounds like this crisis is just going to go on. I mean, is, oh, is that, that, yeah, that's absolutely right. Trees will grow up to heaven. You're absolutely uh-huh. right. That's the argument. So would that be the trigger? You talk about no one knows what the trigger is going to be. Would the That's trigger right. finally be a rise in interest rates where all this debt comes home to roost and all of a sudden nobody can service okay. their service Yeah, nobody their can service it and nobody can refinance it. Well, here's what I think is going to happen. There are two extremes. One is we're going straight into a depression, in which case all bonds, all junk bonds, all corporate bonds will all of a sudden get very, very risky and people will no longer buy them at very low interest rates because they'll require a higher interest rate to save guard them in case they get a default. Mm -hmm. So rates will go up just to adjust for the risk. As rates go up, the existing bond market, in other words, all the debt that's now out there is going to have to come down in price. In other words, if the government has to issue new paper at 6% interest rates, and I own a piece of paper that was originally issued at 3% interest rates, and I want to sell it, nobody's going to buy it because they can get government paper now issuing at 6%. Mm-hmm. So my bond has to come down in price in the marketplace for me to have a competitive interest of close to 6% for my buyer to come in and buy my piece of paper as opposed to the new issue that the government or a corporation has been trying to issue. Now, as this debt comes down in value and it's three and a half times GDP, it means that the governments of the world and the banks of the world and the accountants of the world will all try and whistle their way through the graveyard. And what they'll say is, look, do we need to make these bonds be marked to market? In other words, if the bond was selling at 100, but now it's being sold in the marketplace if you want to sell it for, let's say, 70 or 60. So -hmm. what happens is, should the bank, since they're going to hold the bond to maturity, should the index fund, because it's going to hold the bond, they're going to say, look, we don't want to mark it down to market. We want to keep it at par because we're never going to sell it. That's their argument. The only Mm -hmm. problem with that is... People who are in the bond or people who are in the index fund or people who have it in a 401k, if they need to sell it, if they need to sell their position, the mutual fund has a really or the bank has a really hard problem. Do they mark the value of the fund with the bonds artificially selling at 100 or do you mark it down to where it's selling at 70, which is the real market because they're going to have to sell it to make the redemption? Mm-hmm. And so what's going to happen is the government plead with the government and the government or somebody will say, okay, look, you can keep it at 100. Don't mark the market. That means the first couple of people who start to redeem out of these funds or redeem out of their mutual funds or whatever they're holding, the guys who come out and redeem first are going to make the value at, at par at 100. And all the other people who stayed in the fund are going to get killed because mm-hmm. the bond is reality only selling at 70. Reality yeah. has to intrude at some point. Yeah, and therefore you get a run. You will get a run on every bank. You'll get a run on every mutual fund. You'll get a run on every money market fund. You'll get runs, and that's what the government is saying. That is a disaster. And that's Mm -hmm. where we are because not only have they got so much debt out there, but it's at such artificially depressed interest rates that if rates ever go up, the existing bond market comes down. Well, let's put a little bit of numbers on it just to give you an idea. If, in fact, debt is roughly three and a half t- times GDP to round the numbers off, and let's assume that the debt comes down 
10%, okay? Mm-hmm. That's equivalent to 35% of the gross national product evaporating in wealth. I watch TV like everybody else, and I see all these talking heads and the guys from the Federal Reserve and all this other silly stuff that gets done, and I look at it, and everybody's talking about, well, will GDP grow 1.5% or will it grow 2.25% or is it 1.9%? And they're all looking at this little tiny thing, which is an artifact and wrong stuff to be looking at, because at the end of the day, we're talking about where we could have wealth equivalent to 10, 20, or 30% of the GDP evaporate. When a stock or a bond goes from 10 to 1, wealth evaporates. You get your fidelity statement, uh, and you think you're worth $50,000 on January, then you get your February one, and all of a sudden it's now down at, instead of 50000 14,000 or 30,000. Is this severity just inevitable or is there any way to ease the shock and ease the so-called correction yeah, that must come at some point? You can ease your way through it. And there's only one, it's a very low probability because it's very excessive today. And that's to get world GDP starting to grow at four or five or six. In other words, you can possibly grow your way out of excessive debt. Now, in order to grow out of excessive debt, the place you need to grow is in the private sector. In other words, getting more and more government jobs doesn't create more Buicks. You need to be able to grow the private sector. In order to do that, part of the problem we have is if, in fact, the political constituency in our country or other countries might well be, let's raise taxes, take money away from the private sector, raise corporate taxes and private people taxes, and take that capital and give it to the government and see if the government by investing can increase private sector growth. And that's been proven never to work in the history of mankind. Because at the end of the day, if you're taking capital away from the private sector to grow itself and give it to a government which is designed to be inefficient, it's not that it's just inefficient, it's designed to be inefficient. Our founding fathers did that. But Jerry, on the other hand, when you give that money back to the private sector in the form of tax Mm. cuts and the like, all they use it for is stock buybacks and dividend payouts, and and they don't invest in in new new plants. You're absolutely right. There are some inefficiencies even in the private sector, but let's take that. Let's assume the money stays in the corporation and they pay it out in a dividend, okay? Mm -hmm. So what happens to the money? It goes into the private sector. People buy more cars, toothpicks, neckties, whatever. It doesn't burn up. doesn't go away. It is paid out to people who then spend it. The same is true, by the way, for stock buybacks. But let me tell you what the other side of the risk is. As these corporations raise more and more capital, take the cash into the company in debt, and then they pay the debt out to their shareholders in the form of dividends or stock buybacks, what happens is the balance sheet gets leveraged up, and all of a sudden, there's no incremental plant and equipment to yeah. produce things, okay? So what's going to happen now, as people who got the dividend start to buy things, there's not going to be enough Buicks, and the price of Buicks is going to go up until corporations stop paying out those assets to their shareholders and start to pay it into the company to build up plant and equipment for their customers, 
You know, it's corporations, the guys running corporations, the CEO of any corporation, public corporation, has three responsibilities. He has responsibilities to his own employees to make sure the company is run well and they have jobs and get well paid. He has responsibility to shareholders who are investing money to continue to build the company. And then he owns, owes a, an interest to the consumers of his products or his customers. You know, he has three constituents. He's got to judge it. And right now, they're awarding the shareholders excessively compared to the customers of the company and the employees of the company. Yeah, we see possible signs of a turnaround there in terms of what the business roundtable said about uh, just exactly what you just told me. All of this is fodder for another conversation, though, Jerry. We're running <laughs> oh, out of okay. time. We've got to talk again and catch up and continue this conversation at some point. But in the meantime, you are the best cry in the wilderness out there, Jerry. So I really appreciate speaking with you always. So thanks so much for being with us today. Pleasure. Bye. That was my conversation with Jerry Flum of Credit Risk Monitor, talking about the impending debt-driven economic crash. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. If you have any comments or suggestions on this or any episode, email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.